The O3C Podcast is a proud member of the HyperX Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of the O3C Podcast, coming to you from O3C Games. My name's Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined by Minty Boo. Crushing Crimson Bullets. And Christopher Dow. Adonna Kebab. And we are chatting about our absolute favourite video games all time. Oosh. Announcement! Announcement! Before we dive into this episode this week, we would like to remind you that we have a Patreon page. If you go to patreon.com slash O3C games, you can see all manner of amazing things that you can get in exchange for pledging a few pennies and pounds our way. Not only are there a huge amount of exclusive bonus episodes, full bonus episodes, uh, there's loads of deleted scenes and outtakes, you also get access to the Patreon-exclusive Discord server, which is just a fantastic community. You can chat with us there, you can chat with the fellow Patreons, you can chat with our previous guest stars from previous bonus episodes. Uh, There's loads of things to do on there as well. We've just included a levelling up system, so uh, we reward you with XP points for engaging in conversation, and we're soon to announce additional perks for when you reach certain levels. So uh, get chatting on there if you're on there. If you're not on there, Get on there and get chatting. And then you're on there (laughs) chatting with us, getting XP, getting bonuses, just having a great time. Video games. We love them. If subscribing isn't your bag, that's fine. If you go to o3c.games slash support, you can find links to our Patreon page there. You can find links to easily share the website and the podcast on your social media platforms. We'd love that. That's another great way of supporting us. And you can also make a one-off donation if you want to throw us a few quid to say, oh, thanks very much, or uh, well done, that man there. Then you can do that with a one-off PayPal donation, and uh, we would be very much appreciative of that. And on top of all of that, uh, this uh, throughout the entire month of March, any money that we receive is uh, going to be donated to humanitarian aid charities to help the victims of the current conflict in the Ukraine. The other announcement that we have is uh, very exciting, and I know everybody's going to be tuning in to find out who won our O3C bundle giveaway competition, where you can win 11 games on Steam and then choose a 12th game to complete that bundle from our three favourite video games of all time, Resident Infinite Half-Life 2 and Tales of Symphonia. First of all, thank you to everybody who shared articles from our website and entered the competition. Very, very grateful of that. Please don't feel that you can't continue to do that, so please do. And we would like to announce that the winner is at Kirsty underscore OT. Hey! Well done. I mean, I don't know why I was expecting a reaction there, or like somebody <laughs> to put their hand up in the audience and go, oh, that's me, and come up and collect their prize from a raffle. I won. I won the cake. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kirsty, uh, for entering the competition, and uh, well done. Well done for winning. Drop us a message on Twitter, let us know what game you'd like to complete your bundle, and uh, then we can send you all the Steam codes for you to activate them and play them, and we can't wait to hear how you get on with all of them. Well done. Thank you. And... Let's carry on. (laughs) So this week, we are amending our top 100 lists even further. We've picked a game each to crowbar in, and we'll be crowbarring out a game that's already on our lists. Goodness. Goodness, the sacrifices we make for your enjoyment. But before we do that, we are going to chat about what we've been playing this week. And Minty is going to tell us what his week has consisted of. 
little bit of Super Auto Pets, which I spoke about last week. I've uh, got back into Shin Megami Tensei 5. Oh, unfortunately, <laughs> given the screenshots you've been sharing of the horrendous monster design, yeah, it's yeah. just a tentacled cop riding a chariot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's awful. <laughs> Going yeah. Elden Ring who? <laughs> no, I'm only joking. Uh, no opinion. On... You wouldn't have thought that there'd be less cocks in a game associated with Jor R. R. Martin, but <laughs> I haven't yeah. seen one yet. Okay, well, that, that's positive. Or not. In this chunk of play th- playthrough that I've been doing at the moment, I've really just been moving forward in the story. So I think I'm quite near the end now. I, th- I think I'm in maybe the final area because the, the difficulty has leapt up. Uh, usually there is a there is a there is a tendency in games like this to treat it as just like a a mini map scrubber let's get rid of this icon by doing this thing let's get rid of this one let's get rid of this one let's get rid of this checkpoint marker let's go like that yeah minimalist rpg game what's it called chris open world game the open world game there we go open world game the open world game carry on as you were that's a good game so instead of um instead of Clearing off every checkpoint, finding every little hidden character that you have to find, um, just walking around, picking up every single little bit of um, little bit of treasure that I could find. I've been moving f- swiftly forward to um, the next point in the story, and in this final area, uh, all the there are three bosses, and each one has is outclassing me by about ten levels. So mm. I kind of have been there, yeah, like mm. a yeah, mm. yeah, I know. But I did download the DLC. Um, for it, which um, has accidentally... More cocks? Well, no, no. Downloadable cocks? No. It gave me uh, a skeleton riding a motorbike. With a cock? Which I thought was... Uh, I don't think so. Um, it had a boner. Oh. <laughs> hey! No. God, I so sorry. Can't tell. It's wearing trousers. Not the motorbike, <laughs> the skeleton. He looks cool. He's like a biker. Oh, cool. Like um, Skull Rider. No, Ghost Rider. Skullman. Yeah, Skull, Skull Bikeman. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I got so I got a DLC side quest there, and that that was all fine. Um, yeah, I got, what I got, yeah, I got Nicolas Cage, and then the four <laughs> Horsemen of the Apocalypse, and also I accidentally left on the what I can only describe as uh, pay to win feature, because you know in some RPGs you get little enemies that like have huge evasion stats and and, and one health, and they'll give you like mm. oodles noodles of treasure but you can never fucking hit them yeah or they'll run away after one turn yeah yeah that sort of thing yeah they're in everything they're in everything yeah well in this in this game um the the, the DLC um gives you the option to just have them show up 10 times as frequently as they normally do which has been excellent mm-hmm. because one of them gives you essentially uh, rare candies so I'm not too proud to say that uh, that I have been abusing this quite heavily. So now my main character is at level 90 out of 99, while everybody else is still languishing in the 60s as they're, they're thirsty. They're thirsty for actual experience as opposed <laughs> to just me um, just cheesing my way through this last half of the game. But to be honest, I'm, I'm, I don't really get that much out of the combat in games like this. Um, the, things that I'm, the things that I'm really enjoying about this game are uh, talking with the, the demons as you're fighting them to try and get them onto your side, um, fusing them together to create even bigger, meaner cocks um, and all that sort of thing. So, yeah. So, bigger veins. Bigger veins, yeah. Why do you read thrust? More intense. <laughs> it's more intense 
pulsing, <laughs> all that sort of thing. Fluffier plums. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not taken away from my enjoyment of the game at all. Like, it's, it just means that I'm not having to waste as much time on the grind, which is absolutely fine by me because I've already put 70 hours into this game. So wow. I think my demon compendium which is like this game's Pokedex, um, is a rather nice 80% at the moment. So I'm going to get it to 100% and then, well, just do everything else, I suppose. <laughs> so that's that. And also, I'm currently playing Puzzle and Dragons for Nintendo Switch. Ooh, oh, I picked that up as well. I, I, I took the plunge. I paid £3.24 or whatever, and... Um, my only reference point for this series is the Puzzle and Dragons Z slash Super Mario Brothers edition, which came out on the Nintendo oh, yeah. 3DS. Um, I like that game. I liked it as well. I liked it so much I put it in my list at number 66, I believe. You did. I, I yeah. totally forgot that. Yeah. But yeah. That was a proper bona fide console game. Um, it had... It had a it had an overworld map. It had a character that you could actually control and walk around the town and do things. It had a team that you could build, uh, creatures that you could level up and unlock, and all that sort of thing. It was very much an RPG puzzler. And then the Mario one was the Mario one. It was Mario with a puzzle instead of a level that you jump and um, and do the wahoo on and all that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. So I've I've come into I've come into this series from the console game as opposed to the mobile game. And I think this is much similar to the mobile game because I can't change any of my individual team members. I can unlock new teams as I um, as I go through the, uh, the quest mode. And it's a lot more heavily focused on PvP and making your own custom levels by the looks of it. I've done quite a bit of PvP, which um, I'm good at this game, so I'm doing quite well at it. Well done, you. Yeah, yeah. I just... I think this is my favourite puzzle game. Ooh, controversial. I think it's my favourite style of puzzle game because I don't know how... I, I, di- I didn't think to listen back to the old episode. Um, I don't think I went into the mechanics too much, but instead of just instead of it just being a bejeweled thing where you swap two gems, you, you, you sort of press down on one gem and you use it to shunt all of the other different coloured gems on the on the grid to make as many lines and stars and squares as you can. And just rack up enormous, enormous combos. It's it's incredibly satisfying when you can pull off a really, really good one. Yeah, so mechanically, I think it's my favourite puzzler. I think it's a much cleaner Puzzle & Dragons experience than Puzzle & Dragons Z. But yeah, it's really great. Uh, I, I strongly encourage everybody to pick it up. It's, it's dirt cheap and... It does look like there is some... There is a gacha element to it. Yeah. But after thoroughly whipping several people in this week's pvp arena i did manage to get a free spin on one of the one of the gacha things so i think to to get everything it doesn't look like you have to put any money in outside of what you pay but it will be very very slow which you know that's fine this is like a nice fromage fray game <laughs> very very enjoyable in small chunks just all. Oh. Go into the fridge, or I'll just have a petty for Lou. Cool. Just have a game on Puzzle and Dragons, and before you realise it, you've uh, you've you've had all the petty for Lou, half a tub of Onken, and uh, it's midnight. <laughs> I, I think, like like you said, Minty, I picked this up because I enjoyed the one on the 3DS, and I was sort of expecting perhaps a slightly different experience because it is, I think, a a home version of whatever the mobile game is these days. So it, it doesn't have like a big, more traditional RPG quest type thing it is just 
it seems like endless runs of different battles. Yes. But the, mechanically, that's the bit that really shines in this. And it has, like you said, it's, it's very satisfying in the same way that Grindstone is when you get a big combo. That obviously you're moving things around in a, in a different way and it's sort of, it works in its own its own way. But it does capture some of that feeling that it's like, oh, I've done well here. The entire board is going to be clear and that feels really good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the, the gacha stuff, obviously you've played a bit more than me. So maybe it won't be that kind of particularly egregious as you go through it if you at least have opportunities to kind of get these other bits. But yeah, I haven't played enough to, to really know um, what's either hidden behind that sort of roulette paywall or, or not. It's just avatars. Um, it's nothing yeah. that gives you an advantage in battle. So I can handle that. Yeah, yeah. So to sum up your gaming this week, Minty, it's been PvP and PPs. Hey! Yes. <laughs> so guess what I've been playing this week? Dragon Quest. Golden Ring. That's right. I checked out the new software update for Pokemon Legends Arceus. Uh, <laughs> Jonathan, done. Yeah, and uh, and that was nice, and that was fun. And then I played Elden Ring. There we go. <laughs> I obviously didn't manage to keep up my 10-hour-a-day play habits that I established over that first weekend, but I have managed to find a handful of hours here and there to, you know, keep exploring, and it continues to be utterly, utterly extraordinary. Every single place I find is just awe-inspiring and jaw-dropping and begs to be explored. It's... Oh, it's incredible. Every time I think I've got a handle on how big the game is and like where I am in it, I'll find like a whole new area that literally, like literally doubles the size of the map. And it's also varied as well. It's not just big for the sake of being big, you know, with no definition. It's got an incredible sort of sense of, of, of what it's asking you to do as well. Like it's a game that it knows it's tough and it knows that you know it's tough. But it's gently added in just a few mechanics to make it slightly less punishing than Dark Souls. Like there's even like a uh, like a bonus sort of checkpoint type system between bonfires or not bonfires, but sites of grace. I think they're called in this points of grace. And that's like an American Christian worship band. <laughs> I don't know. It's one of those some sort of bonfire. So like you don't necessarily end up having to traipse through an enormous area all over again when uh, you inevitably die the first few times you battle a boss because there's a a, a, a stake of marica uh, just out, out out the front. But it's also got like similar shortcuts like in the level designs for Dark Souls games. But there's also a mechanic to refill your health potions. And this is normally like a really, a really, really precious thing in a Souls game. You have like your Estus flask or your health potion or whatever it's called in, in the game. And uh, you can upgrade it to get more refills of it so you can use it more times, etc, uh, etc. Et and usually uh, you have a set amount of, you know, of, 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 of potions you can use uh, and that won't restock unless you revisit uh, a bonfire which then regenerates all the enemies uh, and it's like a, a constant uh, sort of weighing up of whether you think you can press through the next bit of an area with only like one health potion left or you know if you need to cut your losses go back to the last bonfire try and get through the area you know without taking as much damage and try again but like in Elden Ring because you spend so long just wandering the wilds and exploring to make sure you don't have to keep stopping and warping back to the last site of grace there's a system whereby if you clear a group of enemies you get a refill or two to your health flask which is just 
it's a brilliantly simple mechanic to encourage you to keep exploring and keep taking risks. It means that you're always sort of weighing up. Oh, I could take them on. I reckon I could take them on. Or maybe if I maybe if I just sneak up on this pack of wolves, I'll get another another health potion refill or something like that. It's just you can. Oh, it's just so good. Everything everything's been considered. I love it so much. I, I I've done a few of the sort of main areas of the game now. But I found out the the second area that I sort of tackled and got through isn't really where the game necessarily intends for you to go that early on, which is why it was so, so tough uh, for me. (laughs) (laughs) But it meant that when I went to the next area, uh, which, well, I mean, you know, I I came as close to pissing through it as uh, as you ever can get in in a Souls game. But I was, you know, I was sort of better equipped to deal with it, which was was really good fun. I managed to do a couple of co-op sessions uh, with some friends, which has been good fun once we got it working. And yeah, I just want to play it. I just want to keep playing it and playing it. Like I've accidentally stumbled into some of the late game areas and... I've no idea how I'm ever going to be strong enough to get through them, but I know that I will eventually. And that's just, oh, it's incredibly exciting. It's it's so good. I'm utterly blown away by it. Good. Chris, what uh, <laughs> what have you played this week? <laughs> <laughs> Almost certainly on the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> yeah, mate. Well, it's always somewhere different, isn't it? The, the main thing that's taken up my time this week has been playing through a good chunk of Telltale's The Walking Dead with Georgia. Oh, nice. And I, I introduced it to her last weekend and we sat down and played the first couple of episodes together. And then by the time I had got home from work the next day, she'd finished the whole of season one. <laughs> so she really enjoyed it. And all the way back when I initially... Well, all the way back when it initially released, I played season one kind of, you know, concurrently as each episode was dropping. And then I just kind of switched off it for whatever reason. So I told Georgia very specifically that she was not allowed to progress without me because I hadn't seen what was going to happen next. And that's been something that she's found very difficult to adhere to. Like I get at least a text a day when she's off and I'm not saying, can I just do half of the next one? (laughs) So, you know, she has just about kept, kept her promise that... We've together now got to basically the end of season two. We've got one episode left. And although I know I've been a bit hot and cold towards Telltale's adventure games on here before, we're having a really good time playing it together. Oh, good. I'm glad. On our website, that's o3c.games, ladies and gents. Hello. I I recently wrote an article about what makes a good tie-in game and try to articulate that sometimes a bad game can still be a good tie-in game if it nails the particular flavor of its source material. And The Walking Dead is a good game, but I think it's also a game that really, really captures the spirit of the comics incredibly well, and in a way that's much more meaningful than the big budget TV series and, and any other spin-offs it's had, as well as any of the other Walking Dead games that I've, I've either played or seen footage of as well. You know, I'm, I'm not a huge comics guy, but I got really into The Walking Dead uh, a few years ago because it wasn't about like big bombastic action that drives a lot of comic stories. Instead, you know, it's it's a post-apocalyptic story. The zombies are really just set dressing and environmental details. <laughs> and, and the story is always about people just being forced to make tough decisions in a proper dog-eat-dog world. And something really notable about Telltale's Walking Dead games are that even though they are essentially just interactive movies with, with dialogue choices and a few simple point-and-click puzzles, they manage to be immeasurably more violent than any other adaptation of The Walking Dead I've seen or played. Like, really, really brutal stuff. And in, in the first two seasons alone, there's been some scenes that, you know, some were interactive, some were just passive, but they've genuinely made me wince. <laughs> but, you know, they're not presented in a sore or hostile, like, torture porn sort of way. They're just shown in a really brutal reality of the situation kind of way. 
And and it never feels like it's being gratuitous just because. It's just that the world these characters are in happens to be so fucked up that they are at the point where if someone gets their leg trapped in a in a bear trap, it has to be a, a quick snap binary decision of are we are we going to leave them to die? Are we going to hack their leg off and hope for the best? There isn't a grey area. Like you, you have to just make a quick decision. Although time being of the essence isn't that much of a hindrance to us playing, seeing as in this particular instance, pad in hand, Georgia was hacking this chap's leg off milliseconds, <laughs> literal milliseconds after control had been returned to her. Like, I, I was really expecting at least like a few seconds had been like, oh, this is a tough one. What are we going to do here? And it's like she, she, was pre- she was hammering the X button before anything else had happened. But I, I didn't have a chance to speak. Now, I'm really looking forward <laughs> to playing to, more uh, with her. Just to see where her ruthless efficiency gets her. <laughs> exactly. Extraordinary. Like the, there's four seasons in total. And, and I always thought I liked the competing Life is Strange series more than this. But I think if I'd actually played The Walking Dead to completion, it may well have been this game that had made my initial list of the two franchises. Because I think it's got really good writing. It's got good pacing. It's got really good voice work. Like the last season just had Michael Madsen pop out of nowhere to voice a character. And and because it's so close to a series or a movie and how it's presented, it's really great to play with another person. Because as I've mentioned before, I, I don't really watch things on my own. I have to have someone sat there with me. And and doing a game like this kind of occupies a similar feeling. You know, you can kind of talk about your decisions or guess ahead to likely plot points or, or whatever. Um, you can pick up the PS4 copy of the whole collection for about 15, 20 quid online these days, which is a real steal. Like it's a it's a huge amount of content. And uh, yeah, very, very highly recommended. I would say that's that's one to try out. The other game I've been playing solo, uh, Georgia wasn't interested in this one, surprisingly, is Gran Turismo Concept all the way back on the PS2. <laughs> wow. Now, the reason for that is to try and placate the bit of my brain mm. that has suddenly become very interested in playing Gran Turismo 7 yeah. that launched a few days ago. <laughs> like, I, I'm not a, a petrol head, uh, but reviews and responses to GT7 have been very, very kind. And so in an effort to try and save myself dropping 70 quid, at least for now, I've been trying to feed like my my lizard brain a sort of like experience <laughs> <laughs> to kind of be like, come on, come on, it's the same, it's cars, you like cars, and just do it that way. Concept as a game, it was a sort of almost demo that launched in between Gran Turismo 3 and 4 on the PS2. It had a bunch of either new cars or in some cases concept cars that would never like properly reach regular market. And I, I picked this game over its numbered cousins as it's got a much more kind of stripped back campaign where you just need to win some races and some time trials in increasing difficulties. So there's no car tuning. There's no hoarding credits to unlock better cars. And so far, it's doing its job in that I haven't yet rushed the shop to buy the new game. So it, oh, it, it's well working. Done. Well done for now. <laughs> though, though, though I think part of this is likely because of how good a game released in 2002 looks and handles still. Like I've been really surprised that back in the day I played a decent chunk of Gran Turismo 3 when I originally had my PS2, but I was never switched on enough to appreciate the technical details of what these games really do. And to be honest, back then I thought it was a bit boring when compared to, say, F-Zero X or Sega Rally that I was playing like a generation before. But Gran Turismo on the PS2 still looks amazing. And, And hammering a time trial on one of the rally tracks included was, if not quite Sega Rally levels of fun, like a proper joy because the physics model is just so well simulated to the point where drifting around a corner and kicking up mud both looks and feels really really mm. great like that that kind of feeling of succeeding in wrestling back control as, as the back end of your car is sort of teetering at the edge of spinning out it's a proper visceral thrill and you know even though like i said this is a ps2 game 
the pad is rumbling away. You feel very connected to the world. You're, you're feathering the analog stick and easing back and forth in the accelerator and brake to kind of keep yourself going. And, and the on-screen bonnet cam view is like bouncing all over the place. And, you know, it's it's just, it's really good fun. And although I'm definitely guilty of favouring easy, in inverted commas, racing games that lean into more arcadey handling like Ridge Racer, the more time I've given to things like this over the years, the more I believe I really will get quite a lot out of GT7 when I when I finally buy it. <laughs> I think there's a lazy habit in the games industry where, whereby people use, oh, it just looks like a PlayStation 2 game as a way of insulting modern titles. But when you take something like this and when you really dig in, there's a lot of really good examples that still look insanely good today. And, and if you can ignore the lower resolution of these things, because obviously this was pre-HD, there's a huge amount to love from this generation. I think it's a big part of why I, I still enjoy playing older games. There's kind of there's, there's just things to find that maybe I didn't really notice or appreciate the first time around. So yeah, that's that's been my week, really. Bit of zombies and uh, a bit of driving. Nice. Like you, I was a little bit intrigued by Gran Turismo 7. I think that graphics in gaming, it feels like they sort of like nail a new thing every generation like i really feel that fire was nailed in video games pretty early on <laughs> now it really yeah. feels like games have, have, have nailed water but something that games have always seemed to nail is cars <laughs> yeah yeah they look great like you said even back to like the ps2 stuff it looks amazing even though it's in sd and it's not you know but like so yeah Gran Turismo 7 looks unreal but I was put off by the fact that I know there's um microtransactions yeah. in it and I know that I know that it's all stuff that you can unlock legitimately and stuff like that but it just feels a bit grubby and I don't like it when you're paying 70 pound for a premium game like it'd be one thing if it was like uh post-release uh like car packs or something if so you could be like oh you know um if, if you're really into I don't know bmws you could buy like a little bmw pack that gives you you know like 2.99 gives you like four or five cars or something so i can understand that that's just like sort of personalizing your experience a bit more but yeah i don't know it's just a bit come on come (laughs) on you're better than that i wonder if i think gt sport which was the the last kind of midway release between six and seven as far as i know it didn't have any formal like this car pack is 10 quid sort of thing. Mm. It just continually added new vehicles. Mm. So if, if this is going to be similar, that it's kind of there is a roadmap and things will continually get added, then I suppose the kind of ability to buy extra credits is a way of just speeding it along to, to get this new stuff that's been added in, I suppose. But, yeah, I, but I, I know exactly what on. you mean. I, I, I'm not in favour of it at all. Yeah. You know, I, I don't... I don't enjoy buying DLC packs anyway. I, I've kind of... I've made my piece when it's a game I enjoy and it's like, okay... You know, I can, I can get a bit more of the thing I enjoy if I spend 10, 15 quid. It's like, you know, I'm okay for the most part with that. Yeah. But when it is purely a case of like, the game is the game. And if you want to give us more money, you can get a bit of the game faster. Or yeah. you can get a slightly shinier bit of the game. Mm. That that does bother me. Because then yeah. it's like, nothing is being added from yeah. me pumping this money in. There's no value to it. Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, it miffs me off. <laughs> so, shall we move on to our amendments? Yeah. Oh, yeah, let's do it. Excellent. I love that positivity because that's what we're going to do. And we're going to start with Menti. The game I'm talking about today, uh, I, I really love it so, so much. But the only bad thing that I have to say about it is it's such a long, deep and involving game that utterly monopolizes your attention. I don't really have anything new to say about it that I didn't say in about 15, what are you playing this week segments last year. <laughs> ah. 
Yeah, Bravely Default 2. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful game. I, I wish I, I, I really wish I hadn't skipped the first two. Square Enix has so many different wells to draw from for amazing JRPG content, particularly when creating something that treats legacy as something to be celebrated, not sort of sprinted away from into a cold and emotionless future. We've seen it with this game. We've seen it with things like Octopath Traveler. And even, well, I assume with the new uh, with, with the new release of Triangle Strategy, brand Triangle new Jam. gaming experiences wrapped up in the visual styles and gameplay mechanics of vintage titles, smashed together to create something exciting yet familiar, comforting yet sleek, nostalgic yet forward facing, like uh, wearing an old glove to the birth of your firstborn. <laughs> <laughs> Where do we start, then, with Bravely Default 2? Three of the four great crystals that keep the powers of air, earth, fire, and water in check have been stolen by the Holograd Empire. The kingdom of Musa, sworn to protect the crystals, has fallen. It's Princess Gloria, the only survivor. She and her guard, Sir Sloan, find someone of interest three years later. You. You are Seth a sailor who's been washed up on the beach following a shipwreck. Helped by a kindly old dear who muses upon your misfortune as if it has some higher purpose, you join forces with Elvis, a carefree scholar, and Adele, his no-nonsense mercenary companion, as they're searching for something called asterisks, strange gems with a hidden power. The three of you then rescue Gloria and Sir Sloan from sellswords who want the fourth crystal, that crystal's power then awakens something inside of you as it recognises you as one of the four heroes of light. No prizes for guessing who the other three heroes of light are. As you recover the stolen crystals, each one confers their blessing onto the other three people in your party, and then, as the warriors of light, you not only end the war that Holograd started, you discover that the crystals chose you to destroy an even greater threat lurking in the shadows, one that threatens to destroy everything. It's a JRPG. <laughs> the asterisks I mentioned earlier give whoever wields them a job class. We love our job classes in RPGs, from the humble freelancer that you start out as, um, to the warrior, the thief, the white mage, all the way up to the mighty Hellblade. Each one gives you stat boosts, abilities, combat techniques, spells, support skills, and most importantly, costumes! Yeah! Each of the four characters' personalities are shown through the costume each job gives them, and how you divvy up jobs should mostly depend on how well each job works with the other ones that you choose. But it is nice having a team of four red mages in their impressive floor-length maroon coats running around. Mm, so stylish. <laughs> the asterisks are not without their challenges, though, for they were sprinkled throughout the world by the antagonists to drive the wielders crazy with the power bestowed upon them. Take, for example, a character called Gladys, voiced by friend of the podcast, Kezia Burrows. Hello. Yay. She's a high-ranking dragon guard of the Rheimdahl Orthodoxy. And she was given uh, the, the Swordmaster asterisk to help aid in her duties and to boost her, her power and her proficiency with the blade. Or so they say. For the dark influence of the asterisk brought out a bloodthirsty fanaticism, which, coupled with the orthodoxy's Salem-like approach to hunting for fey folk, leads to a population trembling beneath the boot of the ruling theocracy. 
As you solve the problems of each new region you travel to on the whole, you're solving the problems of the individuals who reside there as well, and then just plucking their asterisks away once you best them in combat. Uh, oh no, the, uh, everyone, this, des this desert town is flooded because the water crystal is gone. Okay, that's the big goal. Now we're going to get the water crystal back and we're going to help the town as a whole. But on the way, we're also going to take out the thief who stole it and get his thief asterisk for some new abilities. And we're also, while we're here, why don't we subdue the maniac prince who, who locked up the rightful ruler of the town? Surprise, surprise, he had an asterisk too, which was influencing his decisions. Why then, outside of some fancy new duds, some lovely new costumes, why would anybody want to collect these dangerous doodads? Well, Elvis is using them to translate a book that his mentor left him, and that is all. Elvis? Elvis. <laughs> yep, just checking. As you were. Yep, Elvis. <laughs> he is Scottish, I think. The voice acting is a little bit ropey when it comes to accents, but... <laughs> it's no, it, it, it's fine. It's charming. It's charming. It's got it's got real character. Elvis is using the asterisk to translate a book that his mentor left him, and that is all. Only joking. Uh, Here are some spoilers for the next couple of minutes. Uh. So asterisks were created by the aforementioned Fae folk to bolster the abilities of those who use them. An entity now known as the Knight Nexus used them to make itself immortal, trapping its soul in an indestructible book. Book. Elvis's book. So once you bring peace to the region and you stop the Holograd Empire from uh, from from uh, from taking over all the other uh, different regions uh, in the world, the next job for you as the Heroes of Light is to uh, is to destroy the Knight's Nexus, and it's the power of the Asterix that helps you do it in some sort of uh, crazy like annihilation type thing. I think they surround the book and then just go. Plop. After a couple of um, really quite emotional uh, bad ending fake outs, where you uh, you you try and defeat the person who you think has caused all the trouble in the world, and then having one of your characters die, credits roll, and then you suddenly get shunted back in time a little bit or back to your last save point and thinking, oh no, maybe I should do something else. So you do go and do something else, you, and then you unlock a whole other a whole other chapter. A whole other chapter of the story, which takes you into the uh, into the realm of the uh, of the really really big bad boss. You do that a couple of times because you find out that okay, the first boss that I thought I was supposed to kill, we don't kill. So let's move on to the big big boss. Oh, the big big boss is indestructible, and now the and now we're just going to have to trap it in a little sort of space time vortex uh, forever. Oh, and one of our <laughs> one of our characters is trapped in there with it. Oh, that's a shame. Credits roll. Oh, big shame. You get pushed back to your save point again, but then you realise uh, through through deft storytelling that Sir Sloan. Gloria's uh, personal guard, man-at-arms, whatever you want to call him, held the asterisk that will give you the power to destroy the Knight's Nexus once and for all. And then you do a complete other chapter in the story to get that back and defeat the boss once and for all and bring uh, eternal peace to the uh, to the region. It's really great. Like The stakes keep getting higher and higher and higher. A couple of really emotional gut punches along the way to really really confirm that yes no you, we do care about these characters that we spent 80 hours uh, traveling around with it's just a remarkable game um it's just it's such solid gameplay really lovely to look at um 
All the towns you go into have a really lovely hand-painted quality to them. Now the characters, uh, character designs are really nice. The costumes are great, as I mentioned before. The music's really nice as well. It's just a really solid, well-crafted game. And now let's have a little look at placement. I think it's going to... Here we go. Yeah, it's, it's not going to be a straight swap with Final Fantasy III, which is remarkably similar to... To this game so i think just pulling out final fantasy 3 putting Brady default 2 in is a sensible bet but it's it's much better than a than the 93 than the number 93 game so number one uh, it, <laughs> with a bullet <laughs> oh, it, it, won't, it won't be far off i think we'll take out final fantasy 3 and we'll put it in yeah number 18 just above uh, final fantasy 1 and 2 Big numbers. No, small numbers, but big positions. (laughs) (laughs) Small small numbers, big implications. Fantastic. And uh, I have nothing to add uh, to that because I haven't played it. Chris, though, has played, as you know, many RPGs. (laughs) Oh, yes, yes. He's our resident expert. Exactly. For quite a long time, uh, Chris just thought a JRPG was a way of describing the Beatles. Oh, <laughs> that's good. That's pretty good. That's, that's excellent. Good. Oh, that works, doesn't it? <laughs> just put 60 hours into a John Ringo, Paul and George. <laughs> so over to me. And my amendment this week is for a game that I knew I would love as soon as I first saw a glimpse of it. Uh, I remember seeing Blue Fire feature on a Nintendo Indie Showcase video in 2020. It looked like everything I wanted in a game. I think, Chris, you described it as the very definition of a Jonathan Dunn game. (laughs) It was a cool, moody 3D action-adventure game that looked to have elements of Zelda, 3D Mario platforming, and Dark Souls to it. I mean, what more could I want? In our end of 2020 episode, I cited it as a game I was really looking forward to in 2021. And 2021 came and Blue Fire came out and it was an immediate day one purchase for me. I didn't even wait for the reviews to find out whether it delivered on all that it teased in the initial trailer. And within minutes of starting the game, I knew that it wasn't going to disappoint Just the way the game felt to play was so fluid, so immediate. I felt like I had total precise control over my character and that's what I needed to be able to enjoy everything the game was going to set out for me to experience. It also looked and sounded fantastic. Just the opening music on the title screen was beautiful, set the atmosphere and the tone of the game so perfectly. The art style is gorgeous. It looks like Legend of Zelda Wind Waker's moody sibling. And it looks great on the Nintendo Switch to boot, which is always a bonus because that's not always a guarantee. But much like something like Dark Souls, Blue Fire equips you with the bare minimum required to tackle it and then just casually sends you on your way without, you know, very much to indicate where you're meant to go, what you're meant to do. And I've, I've come to really enjoy that, just exploring with caution rather than reckless abandon because you never know what's going to be lurking around a corner. And there is just an incredible element of discovery about Blue Fire. Like we've cited this before as an aspect of the 3D Mario games that make them so captivating to play, where you'll spot something in the distance in a seemingly impossible place to reach, and you'll start to do all the maths to figure out what combination of movements and mechanics you need to pull off in order to try and reach said thing. And Blue Fire has this in absolute spades. 
and there's seemingly no end to the extraordinary platforming combos you can and indeed need to pull off to find everything. And this is just a real credit to the incredible spatial design of the world in Blue Fire. It's it's not just platforms in a 3D space. Every environment has a definite identity and precision to its realisation, and also a degree of verticality that's really rare to see, and, and certainly to see done well. But the sheer awe you feel when you just simply look up in some areas is just absolutely palpable. It's breathtaking design from top to bottom, from the mechanics to the aesthetics and the environment. And, and, and this is never more evident than in a section of the uh, the game called The Voids. And uh, The Voids are kind of like separate levels hidden around this world. And they are pure 3D platforming puzzle solving. Like, what you'll do is you'll find a void and you'll be teleported to an area which is just a series of platforms, obstacles and, you know, the like, just suspended in, well, I guess you would call it a void. And uh, you'll spawn at the start, uh, you know, starting point, and you'll need to reach the end. And they are brutal. Absolutely brutal. Even the easiest ones. And they remind me a bit of the, you know, like at the end of a 3D Mario game, you'll have like a final level right at the very, very end that you'll unlock. The the victory road stuff. Yeah. And you like you have to employ everything you've learned through the course of the game and execute it with pinpoint precision for a series of several minutes to complete. And there's just loads of these in Blue Fire, and they're just stunning, and they're so hard, uh, but they're endlessly creative and surprising. And it's no surprise that the development team, Robbie Studios, they've now released a Void Maker, which is a a free tool on Steam that allows you to design and create your very own Void and share, you know, with everyone. And of course, yeah, you can play other people's satanic creations, I, I haven't dipped into that community yet. I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And I, I mean, I'm fully expecting it to, you know, essentially be like a 3D Mario maker, complete with ample levels of bastard. <laughs> but I think, I think in truth, I'll probably enjoy watching videos of people completing them more than trying to complete every, every Tom, Dick and Harry's idea of fun. But as you'll know, if you listen to our last season of the show, we had the great privilege of being able to talk to Gabriel Rosa, who is the director of Blue Fire, which just gave me a whole other level of appreciation for the game. Gabriel was incredibly generous with his time and his words that he gave us. And hearing about his personal gaming philosophy and how the team approached the creation of the game on how they prioritised the different elements in the development development process. As you'll know from me moaning about games that don't prioritise gameplay, I feel that gameplay should always be the priority when making a game. If you get that right, the game is a good game at its heart. Then you can build everything around it to make the most of that gameplay. And Blue Fire just feels so so good to play it really is incredible like i said at the top you have such immediacy over the controls that allow you to execute your movements with i mean to be honest the precision that you need to get through some of the tough areas but like there's something incredibly freeing when you know you can you can just imagine how to do something and it works it's a very it's a yeah i think that it's it's something that because nintendo have always got it right in the 3d mario games it's easy to it's easy to think that it's that's a given in a 3d game but that's not always the case blue fire does it it's astoundingly well made like the level of polish 
that's in the game, the music, the art direction, the writing, the level design, the mechanics on top of that, like, it's a dream to play. And I would say that the quality of the game that Robbie Studios have achieved is on a par with anything that Nintendo have done. And that's remarkable for an independent studio. Like I've said before about how indie games don't have the luxury of the big studios, especially when it comes to playtesting a game. And the stability of Blue Fire really shows just how hard, you know, the team worked and how dedicated they were to its quality. Because, I mean, making making anything is hard. Like, making a game, any game, is hard. Making a 2D game is hard. But certainly, making a 3D game, there's so many more elements that can go wrong. Like, literally a whole other dimension of potential problems. But they're just not there in Blue Fire. It is just incredibly, incredibly well made. It delivered everything I wanted. There's amazing action. There's a great sense of RPG to it in the way you level up and unlock new abilities. Like, it's a perfect indie game. It's a perfect game. I was blown away by it. And I, I still can't believe how lucky we were to get to chat to Gabriel about how they made the game. It's uh, it's it's going at number one. No, it's not. <laughs> um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's so difficult, like, when analysing these games. Because, like, like uh, yeah, objectively, this is, this is a 10 out of 10 game. But then... Most of the games in my list, I would say, are 10 out of 10 games, <laughs> you know, so it's like, how do you differentiate them? Like, how do I say I love this more or less than the other one? But uh, I do need to find a place for it in my list, and uh, I'm going to do that uh, now. I am going to place this in the in the 30s, I think, in the 30s. So it's sort of in there with, yeah, it's, in, it's rubbing shoulders with Super Mario Sunshine and Super Mario Odyssey, and also stuff like Rayman and Mario Maker as well. Like, I think it's, it's all around about that place. Big games, you know, but then, yeah, Blue Fire is an absolute gem. Absolute gem. I love it. So what am I getting rid of? Well, I'm going to get rid of a 3D platformer that doesn't quite get it right. That's Sonic 3D. (laughs) Oh, thank God for that. (laughs) Thank goodness. Obviously, obviously it's not actually 3D. And to be honest, having that lack of perspective uh, makes a game like that just an incredible chore for so much of it like, even though i do really love that game and i feel like it's only me that's ever properly appreciated the sega saturn version of the game yeah i do like it and i do love it and i'm I'm always going to be very fond of it i also think that if they'd have done a because the mega drive version wasn't like i mean it was it was it was essentially the same game yeah. but the graphics weren't as good and the atmosphere wasn't there and certainly didn't have the music and it wasn't as fluid to play but I was always gutted that they didn't do a 3D port of it onto the 3DS uh, yeah, uh, like yeah. they did with Sonic 1 and Sonic 2. But yeah, it's a shame that Sonic 3D didn't get the actual stereoscopic 3D treatment because I think that would have actually made the game significantly more enjoyable. But as it is, it's not a patch on any of the 2D Sonic games uh, and uh, certainly not a patch on Blue Fire. So goodbye, Sonic 3D. Hello, Blue Fire. I think the best and worst thing about Blue Fire and I mean that in a good way, is the platforming is so precise. And the the kind of, the game gives you so much credit as a player to just be like, just figure it out. You know, a lot of platform games would have you almost like snap two platforms when you get kind of close enough. And, and Blue Fire just does not do that. It's just like, you've got the tools, land on it properly. <laughs> and it meant for me, because I'm shocking at most games, I found certain sections quite tough. You know, I, I never finish the game i never got anywhere near as far as <laughs> as anyone who's half decent at these sort of games but i could appreciate that kind of design choice that it's like we're not going to sort of 
you're not going to make you feel good about this until you've earned the right to feel good. And and I I quite like that. I I think it's it's nice to see, you know, them kind of look at the players and say you you can do this. You're just going to have to try a little bit harder and and just <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> give you that pat on the back when you do get there because sometimes those little like mini Everest just getting to a platform that's up in the sky can take multiple attempts and multiple deaths. But in the same way, I think you know it's, it has that kind of influence from things like Souls games. Sometimes you'll you'll have that same sticking point with an enemy where you you fight it again and again and again mm, until you kind yeah, of figure absolutely. it out, and then at the end you're like, oh, I got through that, I did it, and that's that is the reward. Uh, and I think to kind of take that kind of style and put it into a very different genre was was a really clever thing to do. There we go. Chris, when you finish this episode off with your amendment. Okay. My game today is is a bit tough to talk about because it's a game all about its story and its delivery. And if you say too much about either of those things, it will really water down what makes it such a special experience. The game is called Her Story. Oh, and it, yeah. it is a game I played on mobile very early on in the run of this podcast. And it was so early on that I, I picked through it in, a, in little sessions here and there. And then I think the most I would have said about it on the show would have been an offhand, yeah, it's uh, interesting at the top of an episode. Back when we used <laughs> to do shows that were like 10 minutes long. <laughs> yeah. Now, whilst it is interesting, for sure, so are shadows from trees that cast on the ground and look like other things. <laughs> and so are the, the sort of snacks you make using remnants in your fridge the night before the big shop. <laughs> so I, I felt, you know, her story is deserving of, of far more than, than a shrug or that kind of soft smile because it's just so different to other games. Now, as, as I said, I, I'm not going to spoil anything here. This is kind of as, as minimal as I can be to explain why it's good without getting into, you know, the actual kind of content of it, the meat and potatoes of the whole thing. The setup of the game is that you're sat at an old computer, complete with like a clacky mechanical keyboard and a CRT monitor, and you're in a police station and you are tasked with looking through a series of interview footage of a woman that is somehow connected to a crime. And you're presented with a handful of little clips, none of which are in order, and you must try to piece together a timeline and a narrative based on things that are said in the interviews or maybe that there's kind of outfit changes in, in different interview clips that could denote that it's taken place on different days or kind of trying to look for maybe shifts in, in recollections or alibis. And it's it's probably the most detective detective game ever made. Now, when you've expended the clips that are available, because you start with a small pool, you can search for more by typing in keywords so if the woman in a clip mentions the word accident, for example, searching for the same term may present other clips where she uses that term again. And perhaps that would be in relation to the clip you've already viewed, or perhaps it will fit somewhere else along kind of the investigation's timeline. But across the game, you know, there's there's probably three or four hours worth of footage to watch, cut into hundreds of smaller chunks. But as the pool of clips expands, her story is careful never to give you the tools to watch them in a simple chronological order. So the game then comes from building your clip library, sometimes by deducing topics or keywords likely to feature more than once, and other times by just stabbing blindly in the dark and hoping common phrases or words will produce hits to solve the case yourself. But why this is such an effective game is that at no point does, does it say, uh, well done, here's what happened then. <laughs> and, and even when I'd found probably 95% of the clips available, there's a chance that my interpretation of the story could differ from someone else's. Now, 
FMV games have always been the butt of jokes. Yeah. You know, so many titles launched on the Sega CD or early on in the life of the Saturn and the PS1. And and they would use full motion video just because the new CD format had the storage space to fill. <laughs> that was the reason, really. And and in execution, almost all FMV games are universally terrible. Like, at, at best, full motion video is an accoutrement to a pre-existing game. And, and no one at the time could really figure out how to make FMV be the game. So for my money, Her Story is the best full motion video game ever made. At least I've played. Is it better than Enemy Zero? Uh, I've never played Enemy Zero. I heard it's not amazing though. No, it wasn't good. <laughs> but you know, of, of all the ones that I've played, this works because it uses the limitations of the format so well. You know, FMV games always have the issue that even if they looked good enough for the time, you can't build a satisfying game around video clips that you can't interact with directly. You know, that, that's a really hard thing to work out how to kind of do something with it. But in this game, that problem is acknowledged from minute one. So the game becomes about the interface and it becomes about, you know, meaningful progression is a non-linear thing that is happening in your head as opposed to on screen. And it's an incredibly clever way of just recontextualizing what a game about video clips can be. And because of that, the best bits of her story are the dead ends and the full starts and and the sudden light bulb moments. Like I, I remember playing this late one night before bed. I had the lights out. The flickering screen on my screen was the only illumination in the room. And I'd been hitting my head against one avenue of investigation for what felt like hours, just searching for kind of like like words or, or kind of similar ideas to try and get something new. And I just, I couldn't find any new clips. And then suddenly in my mind, I, I rethought the whole case and, and thought of a golden word to search for that probably seemed really far-fetched to me 10 minutes previous <laughs> but in execution suddenly opened up like 10 new interview chunks and and that's what helped drive me through the next part of the inquiry and it felt absolutely amazing like I, i'd properly figured it out there, there was no other clues than the footage i'd watched but i just started to think like well if that if that happened then could that have been something else and it all came together in just such a, a brilliantly organic way now nothing in the game suddenly changed to say clever boy have a biscuit <laughs> but but I knew that my understanding of this case had then leveled up. And and I think it's a quite groundbreaking piece of interactive media because the game itself really is existing in, in the liminal space between the device you're playing on and your own brain. It's like in that bit between. And it's a story that can only work this well in an interactive medium. Looping back to Telltale's Walking Dead, for all it does well, the fact that I'm enjoying it mostly as a totally passive observer shows that with the right dressing, that same story would work in other media. Like you you could experience Telltale's The Walking Dead as a film, as a radio play, as a book. Like it, it would work because, yeah, it's about the choices. But whatever choices you make, the limits of design mean that certain aspects of the story have to remain constant or like the web of its narrative will just start tripping over itself. But with her story, because there's no win state, there's no best ending, as such, the journey you take through this video archive is entirely your own. And so you might draw a snap decision as to the role of the young woman in the story 30 minutes into your playtime and then just stop there. If, if you've had enough, <laughs> that's fine. You know, you've still had an experience with her story. You've still kind of picked apart and, and got to a point where you thought, yeah, I think I've, I think I've got the hang of that. But the mechanics of planning and development and writing a thing like this obviously means that there is a definitive story to be found. But it's just so cleverly done, leaving gaps in all the right places that the final kind of agency of the thing always lies with whoever's playing. If someone gave you, for instance, like a box of, of 500 Polaroid photos taken of the same group of people, but without context or dates or any sort of organisational chronology, 
you could put together a loose narrative based on recurring faces, on on places you recognised from them, on their clothing, on the general kind of mise-en-scene in these pictures. But there's no guarantee that if, if a person then passed that box to someone else, all scrambled up again, that they'd draw the same connections. And and that's the power, really, of this weird little game. Like, it's, it's a game of breadcrumbs, really. But they're breadcrumbs that have come from maybe a seeded flower-topped white loaf for one player Oof. or a lovely dark rye for another. <laughs> and, and, you know, why is it that one player will start their search straight away with the term, like, murder and just see what they get, whilst another, with the same thinking, might start with altercation? You know, it's, it's just, it's so much about the individual and kind of your grasp of, of language and your grasp of the story that's unfurling. It's just, it's absolutely essential. It's a very, 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 very good game. <laughs> now, off the list today, not connected in any way, Burning Rangers on the Saturn is going to go today oh. because I like it a lot, but on reflection, I don't like it as much as at least a hundred other games. <laughs> like, I mean, that's basically I, I feel, the process you should have done uh, before yeah, this. this. This is the premise. I feel like it's a game that if I were to revisit properly and really get into, I could find a lot more to love, like Balloon Kid style, even though it's it's quite a simple experience. But in reality, with the memories I do have, I know that it's a, a janky, awkward thing that simultaneously showcases some of the best and the worst the Sega Saturn had to offer. Yeah. <laughs> like, this this isn't an all-timer or a largely unplayed classic like Panzer Dragoon Saga. It's it's an odd experiment that essentially acts as a stepping stone between 2D Sonic and 3D Sonic games. Mm. And you know, and we all know how the 3D games turned out. <laughs> so for for better or worse, Burning Rangers was um was the go-between in in that odd transition. Now I'm gonna put her story in somewhere in the mid-50s, I think. I'm, I'm gonna put it a little above the original Metal Gear Solid, is kind of the marker I was going by, because if that game was about looking at film and trying to replicate it in in a different medium. Her story totally eschews conventions of linear storytelling. You know, arguably proving a film like Memento, for instance, could actually have worked much better as an interactive experience. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Nolan's take note. <laughs> you know, it's it's really good though. I mean, you can get her story on on you can get it on mobile for a, for a, a couple quid. I think it's on Steam for a little bit more. But I've never played anything like it. It stands completely uniquely on its own. So yeah, give it a blast. So there we go. Those are our three amendments this week. First of all, we had Bravely Default 2. And then we had Blue Fire. Before finally, Her Story. If you've enjoyed this episode, or if indeed you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please do share the podcast on your social media platforms. Tell a friend about it. Tag a friend. Tag us. Tell us what you're playing. Talk to us. We're at O3C Games on everything. You can go to our website, O3C.Games. You can read our articles. There's some great reads on there. You can find all the old episodes of our podcast. Just, just enjoy what we've done. And if you want to enjoy it even more, please do check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash O3C Games, or you can go to O3C.Games slash support. Consider throwing a few pounds our way, especially this month, as we'll be donating everything we receive to a humanitarian aid charity to support the victims of the ongoing conflict in the Ukraine. Or you can reach out to us individually. You can find me on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. I am at Chaz underscore Hodges. I'm Clement underscore Boo. And please do join us next week when we will be amending our lists even further. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. Hi, it's me, Jeremy Parrish, co-host of the Retronauts podcast. 
the only video game history podcast that's been around so long, it's also a part of video game history. Every week, one of the motley rabble who hosts this show leads a deep dive into the past, whether it's to break down a classic franchise, learn more about a timeless game from its creator, or just wallow in nostalgia. Relive history with Retronauts, here on the HyperX Podcast Network. Loot drop incoming. Get to the drop at hyperx.com for store-wide savings. You may have heard about rising inflation rates that are going on. Well, so have HyperX, and they're responding with deep discounts across all categories of HyperX gear. Head there quick though. Once March ends, so does this madness. It's the HyperX Loot Drop 2, going on now at hyperx.com. <laughs> 